Welcome to Supply Chain Now, the voice of global supply chain. Supply Chain Now focuses on the best in the business for our worldwide audience, the people, the technologies, the best practices, and today's critical issues, the challenges and opportunities. Stay tuned to hear from those making global business happen right here on Supply Chain Now. Hey, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, uh, wherever you are. Scott Luton and Kelly Barner with you here on a special Dow P4 Procurement Edition of Supply Chain Now. Kelly, how are you doing today? I am doing great. And I think special is the perfect word, Scott. We really have something important and I think fascinating to share with people today. So I'm I'm thrilled that everybody's chosen to spend this hour with us. I'm with you. Uh, so we're presenting today's live stream, of course, with our friends over at Buyers Meeting Point. And it's all about the 2021 State of Supplier Diversity Report, where we're taking on the really important and uh, growing topic of the moment. Right, Kelly? Yeah, it's it's enormous. After the last two years, this is one of those things that isn't new, but it is newly ascendant to the very top of every C-suite agenda. And since it's an initiative that naturally lives within procurement and or supply chain in most companies, this is a huge opportunity to not just do the right thing for the business, but do the right thing in a much larger community sense as well. So this is a great opportunity for procurement to be at the forefront, to take a very high visibility role. Wonderful. Well, what very well put, Kelly, as always. Given this a little bit of thought, I'm actually really excited about this today. This is going to be a great conversation. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, hey, well, we can tell we've got some heavy hitters already joining us in the comments. Let's say hello to a few folks. Got to start with Mr. Supply Chain. Daniel Stanton is in Hi, the house. Daniel. I hope this finds you well. Of course, Daniel has no shortage of pro projects, but that supply okay. chain management for dummies has become like a, a must read for folks uh, in industry, right? Absolutely. There is no shame in being a dummy if you are always learning, Daniel. Great connection. <laughs> Thank you, Kelly, for absolving me of all my shame. <laughs> oh, I include uh, me in that too. <laughs> hey, Phil, Phil of Art of Procurement, of course, a uh, big time player uh, in procurement and, and global business. Phil, great to have you here today, Kelly. Phil's one heck of a guy, huh? He is a great guy. It's a terrific team at Art of Procurement. And we actually have a new member of the team, and she may be joining too. So hi to Helen if she's already on the on the live stream watching. Outstanding. And of course, we're very appreciative at Supply Chain now to be partnering with Buyers Meeting Point and Art of Procurement for the 2022, as it were, Supply Chain That's and right. Procurement Awards. So stay tuned for more information on that. May 18th is new date. We've got a really big, important educational uh, element that we're incorporating into that uh, event. So stay tuned. But Phil, great to see you here today. Helen McKenzie. Oh, now, she I, I got to say, Kelly, uh, and good good afternoon, Helen. Outer Hebrides? Or Hebrides. Is that Hebrides. Yes, uh, off the coast of England. It's a very beautiful, wild place with lots of sheep. I put the Helen, wrong. hopefully I represented that okay. <laughs> <laughs> I put the wrong emphasis on the incorrect <laughs> syllable. Um, well, Helen, great to see you here today from the Outer Hebrides. And, and hey, if you got any pictures, we'll take them. Send them our way. But regardless, great to have you here with us, Helen. Let's see who else is tuned in here. We got Chris Minner is back with us. Chris, hope this finds you well via LinkedIn. Let us know where you're tuned in from. Thomas Larson. It looks like he's a friend of Phil, Kelly, and Helen. Is that right, Kelly? He is. Thomas is from Procurement IQ, bringing out a little market intel spin on today's conversation. I love it. I love it. Daniel's got lots of the emojis. I got to find that <laughs> emoji in the middle, the Groucho Marx uh, emoji. I got to track that one down, uh, Dan. Uh, Dara, uh, Dara Butler. Dara Butler. I wonder if the GH is probably silent. If I said that wrong, please let me know. But great to have you here via LinkedIn. And please let us know where you're tuned in from. Kelly, we got Joseph Yakura. Oh, Joe. From Windsor. Is that Canada, you think? Or California? California. Yes. Joe's a data quality expert. This is like, this is like, oh, what was that old show? This is your life. This is so exciting. I love having all these people. Let's do another one. <laughs> <laughs> well, sure. You, I was about to say, you have got the goods on each of these. You've got your finger on the pulse of where they're from, what they do. I love that. Janine Heron from Toronto, the beautiful city of Toronto via LinkedIn. Great to see you here. Hi, Janine. Muhammad Ishmael. Great to see you here via LinkedIn. Let us know where you're tuned in from. Devon from Waco, Texas. Great to see you here via LinkedIn. 
Melissa Gray from uh, but beautiful Sedonia, yes. Arizona. Gosh, they, they're rolling in. We even have Jenny Froome is with us from Johannesburg, South Africa. I was just, Kelly, just, just this morning, Jenny Froome and I were able to sit down and interview or, or re-interview for the fourth or fifth time, uh, Ramatu Abdul Qadir. And it was such an inspiring session. Aren't repeat interviews a treat? Isn't it nice when you're getting back together with people to have those conversations? Jenny's excellent on so many of the Supply Chain Now episodes. It is wonderful. I'm going to shoot through these really quick. We got a big time guest that was going to be joining us here today. We're going to welcome Niraj Shah, CEO of Supplier.io momentarily. I'm going to shoot through these really quick to get as many uh, in as we can, Kelly. And then folks, we want to hear from you throughout the hour-long conversation. We've got a lot of things between Niraj and Kelly to share insights to share, but we want to get your take on them. So hopefully you all packed your point of view, your POV here today. So Rodney is tuned in via LinkedIn from Atlanta. Alfredo from Dallas, also via LinkedIn. <laughs> <With> great enthusiasm. <laughs> Richard, howdy from the wizard of POS. Uh, point of sale, or is that a, or is that a, um, so Richard, let us know. We love our acronyms. Uh, update us. Uh, that might be a geographic acronym, but great to have you here regardless. Lynette is tuned in from Hershey, PA, the, the capital Hello, of the world, of the chocolate world, right? Second is tuned in from Massachusetts via LinkedIn. Felicia Prisbola from sunny Sacramento, of course, with our friends at the Reverse Logistics Association. Man, we've got a lot of other folks. Welcome, everybody. And uh, again, we want to hear from you throughout today's session. So, Kelly, we're going to be bringing in a, uh, a wonderful guest. Let me ask you really quick. What is one thing you're looking forward to the most out of all of the information, data, and thought leadership that we're set to hear from Niraj here momentarily? So what I'm excited to hear, there is so much data in this report. It is the most comprehensive report I've certainly seen around supplier diversity. I'm interested to hear what is the one thing of all of that that really stands out for Niraj? I agree with you. I think we're set to learn a lot from uh, the research and his expertise and thought leadership, Niraj and the team over at supplier.io. So with no further ado, one, one more second, Enrique Alvarez, who of course, Hi, Enrique. he leads Vector Global Logistics. He also leads Logistics with Purpose and Supply Chain Now in Espanol. I'm not sure where he finds a time in the day, but great to see you here, Enrique. All right. So welcome, everybody. So speaking of welcoming everybody, let's welcome in our featured guest here today, Kelly, Naraj Shah, again, CEO of Supplier.io. Naraj, good afternoon. How are you doing, sir? Good afternoon, everyone. And I'm glad to see uh, there are people from all over the world. So good afternoon, good evening, good morning, wherever you are. That's right. Well, you know, Kelly, I, I, there's so many neat stories. I love when I see all these 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 towns and yes. countries pop up, different regions of the world, because we could talk food and music and supply chain and business with them all. But uh, for today's conversation, well, again, we want to hear from y'all. But today, uh, we're going to start with Naraj and kind of get uh, up front. We're going to kind of get known a little better, right? Yes, we are. Absolutely. So we'd like to know, Naraj, we're talking about this pre-show. Three entrepreneurs here. I'm always intrigued with uh, entrepreneur journeys, as it were. So tell us a little bit about your entrepreneurial journey. Yeah, absolutely. So my entrepreneurial journey, like most people, was part of it was uh, dumb luck and part of it was planning. And, uh, you know, I've always been a small company guy. And at some point, you kind of know you want to start a company. Uh, luckily, I had a lot of experience before I started my own. I worked with small companies throughout my career. And then when I finally started mine around, you know, right after I crossed the 40 mark and realized I want to do something like check some things off my bucket list, uh, I started my company. And, you know, one of the things of starting when you're starting that late, the positive side of it is you have a lot of experience, but the negative side of it is you don't have too much time. So I wanted to do something that was meaningful, that brought me joy, brought the people who worked in the company joy, brought, you know, it was meaningful to our customers as well. And uh, on the flip side, also paid the bills. You got a kid to send to college, you got mortgage to pay and uh, retirement to fulfill. So luckily, uh, we've been able, lucky enough to kind of have that work out for us. 
I love that. And as a quick follow-up question, we're going to talk about why supply diversity. But before you answer, I want to pull in uh, Dara's comment here as we're talking about what we're excited to learn more about today. Dara says, looking for current data and stats that will continue to support the business case for supplier diversity and equitable inclusion. And hey, Dara, you're going to be in luck here. So you have really come to the right place. That's right. Okay. So Naraj, uh, it begs a question for you. Why supplier diversity? That's a great question. Again, I would say part of it is luck, part of it is how life kind of brought up, and part of it is choice. You know, I got into supply diversity when I started at CBM. They were one of the pioneering firms is doing, uh, putting systems in place for supply diversity, and that was my first introduction to it. So that company grew when we exited out of it, but when I started my own company, I found when I was looking for something that was meaningful, I found supply diversity was meaningful at not only you know, helped me run a business, but also affected many other smaller businesses that were in the similar situation as ours, trying to start up, underrepresented in many situations. And you know, it was a great program that had more meaning than just, hey, let's run a business and make some money. So while I got introduced to it by luck, but uh, the fact that I chose it again was more because it essentially gave me joy and uh, made something that I was doing much more impactful just for me and also the benefits hopefully we bring to uh, other diverse businesses out there. I love it. Lots of passion and, and, and a, a massive intersection there, Kelly, from what I heard. Hey, really quick, want to uh, share this from Daniel. He's interested in different definitions and approaches to supplier diversity around the world. And Jenny says, you always get what you are looking for and more when tuning in here, that's for sure. Hey, maybe from Jenny's lips to you two's ears, because uh, they're still looking for what, uh, so, all right. So Kelly, where are we going next with Niraj? So I guess Niraj, to connect your story with where we sort of find ourselves today, I think it's important that you shared that this has been part of your background for a while, working in supplier diversity. So unlike so many of the people that have maybe joined the movement or awakened to the movement over the last couple of years, you were already working in this space. And so I'm curious from your perspective, what was it like seeing this space that you've been working very hard in for a long time, suddenly rocket to the top of everybody's priority list, suddenly on the front of every newspaper? What was it like to be in a space and all of a sudden find everybody jumping in to join the conversation practically overnight? Yeah, it was... Uh... It's very interesting to say the least, because when you see this happen, it actually happened during the time of you know pandemic, which and the Black Lives Movement. So the, some of the events that kind of triggered it were not the most positive events, but the results that came out of it definitely have been very positive. The great thing about it is that you know you now see companies that are proactively looking at this as a way of making true impact and true change. Something that's been said for a long time, uh, but not widely adopted or you know, other than some of the larger corporations, but now it's some, something that has come to the forefront. The need of it is very apparent and being in a space that you suddenly see that everybody, you know, have the light bulb goes on for a huge group of people is, is joy. I mean, I, there's nothing more to say other than that, but the number of people that are coming in, the number of people who truly believe that this can make a difference is great to see. We, I got started in supply diversity 20 years ago where you would say the phrase supply diversity and you have to kind of explain what that meant and why it was even necessary. Today, people don't question that it's necessary. The more question when you say supply diversity, it usually says, all right, great, we're on board. How do we get, uh, how do we get started and how do we truly make a difference? And that change is, has been very positive and it's something you know, for me to kind of have been through the whole journey where you're trying to convince people to now say, hey, this is exactly what we want. It's been uh, very fulfilling to kind of be able to see that. And even from the perspective of the research, right? This is not by any means supplier.io's first state of supplier diversity report. It's actually the fourth and you have five years worth of data that you've right. pulled into the report. So again, kind of going back to this from your perspective, watching things change, knowing what you had studied in the past and the kind of data that you had collected and the trends and things that had been revealed, as you started to watch the results come in this year, was there anything in particular that you were either looking for in the numbers or anticipating that you would see as a new trend? Were there any guesses or, or projections that you and the supplier.io team had? And, and were you right? You know, was it easy to kind of guess some of the changes that would come through this year? 
Yes and no. There was one big surprise which I'll share that came through. So one of the things that we obviously were seeing just in our business and kind of reflected in the report was just the number of people that were, uh, number of programs that were coming up, right? So this, we've been doing this for four years and this has been the largest response we've gotten uh, ever to this report. So that itself kind of shows how many people are interested in it. The second thing we saw was just different variety of companies right you know my speculation was yes we would see more people coming in but this would be usually some of the larger companies companies that have traditionally had supply diversity programs or time or had monies and resources committed to that but that was not the case so almost you know 47 percent of the people who responded to this survey had less than 500 billion dollars in or half a billion dollars in u.s procurement generally much smaller than what we saw traditionally uh, as companies that actually implement supply diversity program. So that was a surprise for me because, you know, in our mindset, we are like, all right, this is the realm of larger companies, companies that have a lot of money where they can allocate in different places. But what the trend that was great to see and something that was surprising as well was this is not just restricted to, hey, these are big companies that are implementing, implementing supply diversity programs. It is across the board, right? And uh, so that was not something we had guessed. We had guessed that the volume would be higher. But the fact that it was not just, you know, larger companies, but across, everybody across the board essentially is accepting that this is something that they should be doing to whatever extent that they can, right? If you're a larger company, you're spending obviously many more dollars, but even as a smaller firm, are uh, you looking at saying, how can we uh, allocate spending to supply diversity? That was a surprising insight. And that was great to see that, you know, that's happening across the spectrum there. Hey, Kelly, if I can chime in, we've got a great question from Kevin L. Jackson. Kevin, of course, leads our digital transformers series here at Supply Chain Now. And he's got a great question. How do you deal with the different interpretations of supplier diversity in different societies around the world, Niraj? That's an awesome question uh, because there are you know, supply diversity in the U.S. is now well accepted. People say supply diversity, and especially if you're talking to somebody in the procurement space, they understand it. The other flip side that sometimes people uh, don't appreciate as much is that the suppliers understand it. So when you go to somebody and say, hey, you know, this is an advantage for you to use this as a channel for you to market your business, to get a foothold, to use additional resources that companies are uh, you know, providing to you to reach out, that's a big you know, thing that makes the network work because you need not just the corporations, you need the diverse businesses as well. And when we go outside the US, yes, the definitions are different. But I think as Kevin mentioned, he didn't say the definitions, he said the interpretations are different, which is many more companies now accept supply diversity. And, you know, based on the region that they're in, the types of categories might be different. Some, you know, women-owned businesses, generally universal. Uh, Minority-owned businesses, the definition might change based on where you are, veteran-owned businesses, small business, and so on. So some of the definitions change. But the bigger challenge we see outside the U.S. in terms of the interpretation of supply diversity is the second half of the network, which are suppliers, right? Many suppliers today either are not aware of supply diversity or even when they're are made aware of the fact that these resources are there, sometimes don't engage or don't appreciate why they should engage. We had one customer that was trying to do this globally and they brought in suppliers that they knew were diverse who failed to identify themselves as such because they said, well, why should I, right? Why can't I be treated just as another business? So um, as you go outside the US, the definitions change and I think that's a solvable problem. Like we, we track definitions across, you know, over a hundred different countries. But when you go into actually making that uh, intention into reality, some of the roadblocks you run against are less about whether your company is accepted as whether the suppliers, uh, you know, the supply chain, your suppliers are aware of it and if they can participate in it as well. So that's how kind of where we look at global interpretation changing a little bit for supply diversity. All right. So Kelly, shifting, I appreciate that question, Kevin, and thanks for, for taking and offering up your response to Raj. Kelly, where are we headed next? So we're going to start with the current state. So today we're going to use this time with you, Niraj, to talk a little bit about the current state and a little bit about the future, because that's where some of the really interesting uh, results that we can interpret come from in the report. And to that point, um, for everybody that's joining us, we're going to be putting the link so that you can download that report into the chat. Thank you in advance to the production team for doing that. You just have to promise not to go start reading it until we're done talking about it. <laughs> Kelly, it's like it's like uh, 
Is it Pregu? It's in there. Was that their tagline <laughs> back in the 80s? They've already okay. dropped it in the comments twice. Perfect. So, and I'm sure a couple more times coming. But uh, so, Kelly, it's in there. <laughs> Perfect. So, Niraj, you talked about the fact that there's been this huge influx of new companies. So, where in the past, I believe it was 42% uh, of the companies were sort of in the 10 years plus the very mature range. That number of companies has stayed the same, but now there's this huge juggernaut of companies entering. So 40% of the companies that have, I think it's two years and under, are now sort of that same portion of the community. How have you seen evidence that their energy, their intent, their enthusiasm, and frankly, their a new approach is starting to maybe drive some changes in the movement as a whole? Yeah, so... You know, the influx of new new companies has definitely changed, at least from what we see, a lot of how supply diversity is, has been traditionally perceived, right? And even some of the approaches that are there, because and as I mentioned earlier, many of the new companies coming in are also newer companies, are also smaller companies. So some of the tools, some of the resources, some of the access to budget and other people that uh, the larger companies traditionally had those are not available to many of these younger companies, right? So uh, as new companies come in, I see two things. One is, you know, they are coming in with a lot of executive support already there. This was something traditionally that companies had to kind of, you know, fight for and build to say, no, this is something that's important. Please let's kind of focus on this. But the new entrants have that built in. It's the CEOs, the CPOs that are kind of and the boards that are asking for this program to come in. So that's a huge advantage that they have. Yeah. But, uh, you know, what then the next step comes in is when you have the will to do it, now you need the tools and the structure and the processes to be able to do it. And that's where we're seeing this big gap where a lot of companies have adopted supply diversity metrics and supply diversity, uh, sorry, goals. But putting that infrastructure in place, putting, doing the hard work of saying, well, all right, now we have these goals, how do we implement them? There's this big knowledge gap that exists between companies that have been veterans and have been doing it for a long time and the companies that are new that are starting to kind of build out uh, their programs. And so that's one thing that I think, you know, the two types of companies can actually work well together and uh, share uh, resources and kind of learn from each other as well. But the other thing we're seeing is a lot of new and different ways of looking at supply diversity as well. Because, you know, when you're a smaller firm that you're coming in, it's just the dollar amounts can't be can't be something that you measure and because they may not be very large, right? So if you're a $100 million company and you say we spend uh, $10 million with diverse businesses, in most cases, you know, that looks like a small number because there are companies that claim to spend billions of dollars. So we see a lot more tra trend towards saying, well, let's not look at the absolute number and let's, let's start looking at percentages. And can we hit 5, 10, 15% of our spending with diverse businesses? And that makes, you know, that gives that's just as a great of an accomplishment uh, as if it might be that you're hitting a billion dollars with diverse businesses. And the second thing is the types of things companies are starting to look with supply diversity is also shifting, right? Uh, previously, it was, as I mentioned, dollar value. Then it's, I think we're seeing a lot more adoption of percentages. But then the third thing we're seeing is kind of broadening the definition of supply diversity, which is you're not just asking how much money are we spending with diverse owned businesses, but now you're going into your other businesses that are not diverse owned and saying, well, tell us about your workforce. Is your workforce diverse? Or do you have equal representation or you know, equitable representation in your board and your leadership and your overall team? So overall definition of what people are looking at supply diversity is also trying, uh, starting to change. So a lot of new movement coming in. I think, uh, you know, at least from the products we've released, we've probably released more new products in the past year than ever before, just because the types of needs and the types of definitions people are coming up with are, is uh, shifting the trend quite a bit. Wonderful. Hey, Kelly, before we continue, I want to get a couple of comments here uh, from our skyboxes. Helen talks about how there's more emphasis on veterans in the U.S. when it comes to supplier diversity. It's a great call out there. Larry, great to have you back from uh, Albany, Georgia. I think I said that right. I always get it wrong. Albany, I think I got to put more <laughs> emphasis on the second half there, but great to see you. Dara talks about more work on closing that gap and how to do it in a sustainable way is a huge need. And that's a great call out because you don't want to have a big win in 2021 and not be able to continue it forward in, in how the company operates and, and, and embedded in its culture. And finally, on the, the uh, important stuff, I'm not sure who this LinkedIn user is, but 
he's particular. He or she's particular about spaghetti sauce. It was ragu, and those commercials were contemporaneous with the Prego brand commercials. I think I was combining ragu and Prego, but uh, <laughs> thank you for that. Okay, got to maintain our sense of humor in today's supply chain for sure. All right, so Kelly, where are we going? Kelly, to uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to kind of point out what uh, Dara said, right? And I hope I'm pronouncing the name right. And that comment that she made of how to do it in a sustainable way is essentially the theme of our uh, state of supply diversity, right? It's we started all many programs started out with great intentions, but for them to become sustainable, become adopted as something that goes beyond just 2020 or 2021, they have to kind of transition from an intention into something that's practiced day in day out. So I think that is the theme of how you know when we see supply diversity kind of maturing or not maturing in the next few years, if that if that stage happens where companies transition from, you know, we've started these programs now actually making it very, as a normal activity, as part of their normal uh, sourcing exercises. I think that's the big transition we want to kind of hope uh, to see and drive. Absolutely. So and to that point, and again, exactly, Dara, with the sustainability idea, you can't have sustainability without ownership. And Niraj, according to the report, 85% of the respondents see supplier diversity as a procurement-owned initiative. So even if there happens to be a chief supplier diversity officer or a vice president or a director of supplier diversity, when it comes to execution, we're really looking at procurement. And it sounds like, from what you're saying, it needs to become just more a part of the way we work. Right. That the more procurement can do to sort of integrate that into existing processes and objectives. Um, are you starting to see evidence either because procurement's technology has come so far or our processes have matured? The procurement finally is in a position where we can say this isn't a special side initiative that we're going to do when we think the conditions are right. This is something that we're going to do all of the time, back to your point about percentages versus maybe dollar amounts. What are you maybe seeing stand out within the procurement community there? Yeah, I think there is, I see procurement being a lot more intentional about uh, supplier diversity. You know, traditionally you had a supplier diversity team or a supplier diversity function in most cases, they own supplier diversity and uh, anything that came through was, you know, driven by them finding suppliers, tracking metrics, working with uh, business owners, the responsibility fell on to more uh, supply diversity managers. But now I wouldn't say we're fully there yet, but I see a lot more procurement teams kind of trying to take that and make it more of a shared responsibility because to the earlier point of it being a sustainable practice, you know, if you're working with, uh, like I saw Jamie um, on this and you know, she used to work at United Rentals and, you know, you're looking at large companies here and, Large companies, one person cannot manage procurement of billions of dollars from diverse businesses. It has to be something that is part of your standard process. One of the interesting data points we found that even today, even with all the right intentions, you know, in 76% of the cases, most procurement teams do not have sufficient time to go and look for diverse businesses to include them. Right? So that still says that there's work to be done. But I think you know, what we see is in all the conversations we're having, it's not just one person coming to the table and saying, hey, I want to have a supply diversity program. It's more a sourcing team that's coming in. We're seeing a lot more sourcing directors. We're seeing in several cases, the CPOs come in, uh, vice presidents of procurements come in that are saying, hey, this is something we want to do. And so the trend towards it being something that is included as part of standard processes has started. You know, the momentum's there. I hope it kind of continues to go that way. Uh, Kelly, really quick, we're getting a ton of comments, and I want to represent the folks in the skyboxes, as I know it's important to all of us here. Terrell Smith says, love the trend of expanding supplier diversity to also consider workforce diversity. It's an awesome thing to expand the impact of diversity in our supply chains. I'm with you there. Janet says, it's so important to measure the percentage of total spend, which is what Naraj was talking about earlier. It helps to raise awareness when leaders learn that Upwards of 97% of their spend is with white male-owned businesses. Great point there, Janet. I want to target this one here. Uh, Donovan says, targets are a strong focus to drive intentionality. Are there any suggestions to also help articulate the value of expanding targets slash goals in supplier diversity, i.e. cost savings, innovation, you name it? Naraj, any comments on that? Yes, so... 
you know, this points to, I think, an earlier point somebody had tangentially mentioned was around business case, right? What are the reasons why companies are, are implementing supply diversity? And we this time asked the question in two ways, which is what are the benefits that happen to your, that you feel are coming to your company? And second one is what, what benefits do you see externally? So, and I think both of them kind of go into why target should be increased. Uh, when you look at the internal aspects of it, the, you know, the biggest reasons we got was this was, uh, it aligns with our corporate culture and also that it drives innovation and cost savings, right? So those are the top three that were there. So more many companies are kind of measuring along those lines to say that we see benefit out of it. From an external point of view, the, you know, it gets sometimes said that this is a corporate, uh, corporate social responsibilities that we should be kind of tracking as well. And, uh, and then brand awareness comes in. But one aspect that everybody mentioned was that impacts the community, right? That sounds like a corporate social responsibility type of initiative, or but it's not really because uh, there's an article or a link that uh, we can share, which was by the Kellogg Foundation, which said that hey, if we are able to cross, you know, close this equity gap that is just in the less just in the minority-owned business segment, segment, then in the next 30 years, we'd create an additional eight trillion dollars in the U.S. Uh, economy. Wow. And those are not small numbers. That's like bringing five more Fords. That's bringing you know another uh, six more Googles in there. I mean, there's the number, the scope of what you can do in that kind of growth in just the equity portion. I mean, the uh, the GDP portion is gigantic. So yes, the goal of it is we're impacting communities, but really you're creating new customers regardless of the business you're in, right? Uh, the analysis kind of show that you spend you could have three more McDonald's companies the size of three more McDonald's come in if you just you know, close the gap in those areas. So the impact, while it may be looked at corporate social responsibility, essentially you're kind of enabling future customers to buy more of your products. And I think that's sometimes kind of uh, missed out in this. But uh, you know, if you look at targets that are there, either if you look at it from an equity portion of it, the numbers as somebody had shared, you know, only less than 3% of business spend goes to diverse businesses on an average. Our data shows slightly higher, but the numbers are in that range. Uh, you know, and so from there, you can say that's not equitable either. But secondly, from the fact that, you know, what you're doing is making a difference in the community that's now going to buy your products. And uh, there's enough data to show that regardless of the industry you're in, if we're able to close that gap, you will create a lot more customers for your products. Wonderful. All right, Kelly, I'm sorry. I'm interjecting with a lot of comments. <laughs> I can't even get to all of them. But There's so uh, much to say on this topic. It's hard not to. Lots of passion and, yes. and lots of purpose. Uh, where are we going next with Naraj, Kelly? So actually, I think we're going to continue on this trend of looking forward, Niraj, right? You talked about the Kellogg's findings of what we can do over the next 30 years if, if we're able to readjust some of our priorities and, and maybe even pulling Donovan back into this. You know, when we look at different ways to track and measure, part of it comes down to company performance. But some of it is making sure that people have an individual stake in the difference that's made around supplier diversity. And one of the findings that I thought was interesting from the report is this idea that more and more companies are moving to not only get executive level buy-in, but to actually put performance metrics into executive level performance reviews. Yeah. Um, is that something that has really picked up pace this year? Is it something that's been building steadily over the last few years? Because um, I'm, I'm interested in this idea of connecting it on the individual level around targets. Yeah, so it is, it has been picking up. It was, this was one of the areas where I thought, you know, we didn't see as much progress as I was hoping, which is, you know, companies have a lot of intention in doing the right thing, but I think we're still in the early stages for putting in uh, all the, again, I'll keep saying the frame, you know, phrase infrastructure or framework underneath it. And that kind of incorporates a lot of things. It's, you know, tools, processes, practices, and as part of that, when you come to the people aspect of it, is incentives. And uh, often, when you, you know, to drive an, uh, an initiative to its full potential, you have to align management incentives along those lines. So the numbers for the number of companies that have added management incentives has definitely gone up. Now it's about a third of the companies actually respondents had performance objectives that included supply diversity, and that's a great trend. But for many of the new companies that are starting this out, and many of the established ones as well. For it to truly take root, I think that number needs to go higher. And that's one of those learnings that companies that are a little bit newer, right? I would have to think that the sooner you could get a practice like that in place, 
the more it's going to do to accelerate not only the traction, but also then, of course, the sustainability of your program, the, the longevity right. of it. And to your point from earlier about other ways that this practice is growing, you talked about the fact that companies are starting to realize they can't just do this through their own spend. They mm -hmm. need to be working with their supply partners and out into the supply chain. You know, we, we look at multi-tier supplier risk. Certainly that's a very common practice. We've all now discussed over the last 18 months, but the same type of thing can work with diversity. So if you would talk for a minute about this idea of either tier two, right, or workforce diversity, what are some of the leading best practices that you're seeing in that area? So yeah, so tier two is, I think, an excellent way of driving supply diversity, you know, more broadly than just some of the leading corporations that implement it. And depending on the industry you're in, you know, in some cases it's easier to do, in other cases it's not. But across the board, you know, when we see that supplier diversity professionals kind of include a tier two program, it does lead to more adoption of supply diversity practices within their supply chain. And many are doing it just because, you know, they have their own corporate initiatives, many do it because of corporate uh, or customer requirements. I mean, we are a small firm, but even a firm our size uh, gets now contractual requirements to say, to the extent possible, we will use diverse firms and we sign those, right? To, because we want to obviously support supply diversity ourselves. But that chain of encouraging tier two through contractual requirements is, is very powerful. You know, today we have over 6,000 companies that report into our tier two platform, you know, which means that 6,000 companies, at least in some form or fashion, are practicing supply diversity in the US, which is tremendous, right? And using that as a kind of leverage to expand supply diversity impact throughout your supply chain is, you know, in many ways how the initial supply diversity program started, but with the number of programs that are out there today, I think it can multiply the effort significantly. And uh, as companies kind of tend to, are trying to kind of redefine supply diversity, I think you could scan, you know, redefine supply diversity, include workforce as well. You could expand that scope quite a bit. Today, companies tend to ask tier two from information from companies that are, you know, much larger spends. If you're spending $10 million with them, then yes, give me tier two. Uh, but if you're spending half a million dollars with them, they may not ask it because if the effort is too much. But, or you may not get sufficient tier two spending. Uh, but with the workforce diversity concept, regardless of the size of the team that you are, if you could be, you could be half a million dollars spending or $10 billion in spending, you know, you can ask the question of, is your workforce diverse from pretty much anybody? So we see that kind of concept expanding as well and having the power to try a lot of, uh, a lot of impact through that. Well, I think it all plays to this larger conversation that procurement has had for a long time around partnering and collaborating with suppliers. It's something that we've said we've wanted to do for a long time. I think we've intended to do it for a long time, but you do need to have a use case for that energy to go into. And right. if we can get to the point where we are either partnering with our diverse suppliers, and I'll ask you more about that in a minute, or partnering with our suppliers to help them advance their own supply chain and, and workforce diversity, it, it almost creates a natural channel for some of that collaborative procurement energy to go into because it supplier diversity work does not end when you have an awarded a contract to a diverse supplier, right? There, there is an expectation, especially in the more mature programs, that you will continue to invest in and develop these companies what types of activities do you see around the most mature supplier diversity programs that are really working consistently with their diverse suppliers to help them continue to develop as successful businesses? Yeah, I mean, uh, there are a lot of great stories here. In fact, uh, I saw Mohammed on the, uh, you mentioned him earlier on, I think he's from CDW, if he's the right Mohammed. But, uh, you know, they have an amazing case where, as you mentioned, it's not just get a supplier on board and you know you're done with it right so the great programs that are out there they expand spending significantly and there are certain companies that do it very well right? it's it's kind of like uh you know i try to equate it to sales it's always hard to get the first customer but once you get the customer you can always kind of make you it's easier to keep them happy and then grow spending with them uh or grow your sales with them the same thing happens with diverse suppliers if you have a great supplier you know an easier way is to expand your spending with existing suppliers. And some of the companies that are uh, that we've seen, 
you know, I'll just take a few names. We have 500 customers. So if I don't take your name, doesn't mean you're not doing it. So I apologize. <laughs> These are just the cases I'm aware of. But we've seen CDW done that. You know, they had a woman on business that started out with 10 million and it took them to $170 million, which was amazing. Uh, we had Eaton that started out with another company that was a few million when they started and went to $70 million with them. So they've done some, you know, many companies have kind of invested in kind of trying to leverage the, customer, the supplier once it's in to help them grow the business within the company. And when you do that, realize not all your suppliers are fully capable to just expand to that level, right? And so great companies that kind of do these programs will also then provide a lot of support, both in terms of mentoring and saying, well, how do you expand? Uh, very critically, access to capital, because that's the biggest challenge in expanding and why some companies cannot uh, grow. So they'll have better payment terms, maybe some loans. Um, in some cases, they have venture capital funds that might also invest in those. And you know, third is kind of the essentially introducing the company across the organizations and expanding that. As a small business, I'll, I'll say this outright, which is you know, the most thing we need, the biggest form of supply development we, we need is more contracts, right? <laughs> so the more we can get there, the better it is. But as we get those contracts, everybody's gonna have development challenges. And that goes from leadership, that goes from tools and processes, that goes into just infrastructure. And you know, many companies that have good supply diversity program, definitely many of them will help out on the leadership and the mentoring portion of it. Several are now implementing programs to help with the finance side of it. And you know, the ones that make deep investment into certain companies, they will also do the infrastructure and say, hey, let us co-build something out to kind of expand that out. Yeah. Hey, so really quick, I'm going to bring in a couple comments here. We've got a ton of them and we've got a ton of questions that are wonderful questions that we're not going to be able to get to in the last 18 minutes or so. Uh, I would encourage, we would encourage all the folks in the comments, the skybox section, connect with each other and keep the conversations going. I want to bring in Donovan's point here. I think it's important. We were touched on tier two earlier. I think it's important to have a tier two focus, but that can't replace the direct targets, which I've seen some companies do either or scenario versus an and. That's an excellent right. comment there. And then Stacy, uh, in my country, I think there is still a gap with supplier diversity, but glad to know that we are making steps towards integrating this in our supply chains. Having uncomfortable conversations is necessary to create a channel for supplier diversity. There is hope there. Love that. Okay. So Kelly, We've got 18. We've got, we're kind of coming around the home stretch here with Narod Shah. We're just, we're really just, it's just a tip of the iceberg in the hour we have here. And we want to make sure we encourage folks to download the full report, right? Absolutely. No, there is, there is so much in there. And I think one of the things that I appreciated in looking at the report is the sense of context that you get when you actually go and look back through four reports worth of data. Because if you were just to look at data from 2020 and early 2021 as sort of a snapshot, you might think one thing about the supplier diversity movement when, in fact, it's been a very long journey. As you said, Niraj, you've been in the space for, for 20 years. I think I can think all the way, way back to my earliest days as a practitioner. I remember celebrations every time we managed to either sign a contract with a certified diversity supplier or help a new supplier get that certification. That was considered a success factor as well. And so as you think about the general tone of the report from a forward-looking standpoint, we have touched on so many things. We've talked about uh, metrics in individual performance. We've talked about globalization. We've talked about moving into tier two, but none of that is possible without information. Right, I think of Joe Yakura that has joined us, whose sole career focus is around data quality. It's so incredibly important that we understand where are we today from a benchmarking standpoint, and then based on our why, where is it that we need to go? Is, is benchmarking current state the place to start? I mean, is that if somebody is among these newer companies and they're just coming into this movement, is the right place to start for that procurement team benchmarking their current status, their current percentage or, or number of diversity suppliers? Yeah, I think it is. I think when you speak, uh, when you say the word benchmarking, you know, it kind of applies to work, two things in my mind. One is, where are we today? And then second thing that many companies want to look at is, well, where is our industry, right? If I'm saying I'm at 3% of spending, if my, everybody in my industry is at 7%, then I have ways to catch up. The first type of metric I think is key. 
right? Regardless of where you are today, you have to know, well, regardless of where you want to get to, you have to know where you are today. And finding that out today is quick, easy, fairly cost-effective compared to what you, you know, what you used to be in the past. And I think that's necessary just because you have to know a few things. How much am I spending today? Where do I want to get to? What are given the nature of my business areas of opportunity, right? There are certain companies that just can't spend in certain areas, at least in the short term, they can't. And so having that area, that understanding is critical. Then the next thing that we normally, I mean, I would say I probably get asked this at least five times a, every week is to say, do we have a benchmark that we can compare ourselves to? And the reality is there isn't. We've tried to build some of it as part of this part of this uh, state of supply diversity that we did. But you know, given the restrictions about data sharing and given the restrictions around how much companies are willing to kind of be able to put their information out there, the benchmark that we've created is somewhat weak. But what it does still tell you is that uh, many of the top companies have done extremely well, right? In our survey, when we did the top companies were over 15%. In spending, many of the customers we have today that spend over you know thirty percent of their spending with diverse businesses, and this is not including small businesses. So the limit of what you can achieve is very is significantly uh, high. But what we say is, come in, get an assessment of where you are today, and set realistic benchmark or realistic goals to kind of progress your spending. Right. So it's impossible for most companies to come in and say, I did three percent today, and I'm going to go to fifteen in the next two years. That is just a very large uh, change, and you know you have established supply chains. You just can't switch it uh, that easily. And secondly, you know you have to deal with organizational change as well. But setting realistic goals after you set up initial benchmark is is key. Is to say today I'm at three percent. How do I get to five? And then what are the steps we can take to do there? So to your point, data is key, and figuring out if you're starting a new program of how much are you spending today. And more importantly, where are you spending today, and where are the opportunities that we can expand into, and then using that data to now set up, hey, here's where we can go in the next year, given what you know, what we're even going to buy, what new opportunities come us to uh, come us come up for us to kind of even switch suppliers if we are switching it. So setting that path up uh, is is very important, and as you mentioned, data is key for that to be able to kind of visualize that and uh, build that plan out. And all of the communications around that too, right? I mean, you have numbers in the report about how many or what percentage of the companies that have these formal diversity programs communicate or report internally. And then it's a different percentage that report and communicate externally, you know, depending on the size and the scale of your program. And then of course, the size and impact of your company, different teams are going to take different approaches to when do you decide that you're at the point to communicate externally versus tracking things for an internal purpose. I imagine the goal is to have as many people as possible communicating externally. To what extent is it necessary to draw that line in the sand with an external communication, right? Is it, yeah. you know, at what point would you say in a program's maturity, is it appropriate to start speaking externally about the work that's being done? And personally, I feel companies that make that commitment openly and boldly as early in the program as possible achieve the best results because now you have an external audience holding you accountable rather than just having interim targets. So again, this is my personal view on things. So take it with a, maybe not even a grain, but old fistful of salt. But uh, you know, the sooner you mention these targets externally, the more energized your own organization will be because now you have external people, your shareholder, your board kind of holding you accountable to it. An example for this is, you know, in the last year, there are many companies that did this. I'll take one example, but like, for example, Facebook came in and said, we're going to take our spending from $300 million to a billion dollars with diverse businesses. That is a huge, I mean, huge jump for any organization, three times your diversity spending today. And what it did was it essentially, and they just, it's not the supply diversity organization that said this, Sheryl Sandberg came in and said this, right, the chief operating officer. And that energized the organization significantly uh, in driving changes, looking at new ways, looking at supply diversity in a completely different angle to say, given the type of company that we are, how do we make that change? And I don't know if that would have happened if it wasn't as visible of, uh, of a declaration, right? So my view is say it as early as you are comfortable doing, but the sooner you do it, the more traction you get both internal and externally, just because of the fact that 
you know, like with any goal setting, once you say it and write and tell other people about it, you're more likely to try and hit it. So before we wrap here, I want to share just a couple of quick comments. And of course, we're also going to make sure folks know how to connect with Naraj and the supplier dot io team daniel stanton and, and again we, we we could have a series of conversations endless conversations around this really important business party he loves to see the link between supplier diversity and supplier development that's often overlooked i uh, really agree with that clay has dropped in the link again th three or four times folks <laughs> go check it out check it out and let us know what you think we welcome your feedback let's just here. worried i'm gonna ask him to do it again <laughs> <laughs> i'm just enthusiastic about the report <laughs> Kit Carey says, agreed, when looking for new suppliers, diverse suppliers are my primary focus. I love hearing that. Dara, and, and, and really appreciate, Dara, your contributions here today. You really brought it. Daniel Stanton agreed, supplier development is a hard case to make, especially when diverse sourcing in and of itself is often perceived as an administrative burden to procurement. On that note, one final question for you I've got, and then and Naraj and Kelly, feel free to weigh in before we make sure we, we um, dot our I's and cross our T's. When it comes to supplier development and supplier diversity and really successful approaches, intentional approaches where le leadership teams at the highest levels want to invest and make that happen, I would argue, Naraj, based on what I'm hearing and my own personal experience having been in the manufacturing arena, old-fashioned, beat down, hammer down your supplier type of, of approaches and not relationships, but I'm going to use that word. That really sounds like to me would hinder true efforts at not just developing, but also diversifying your supply base. Can you speak to that for a second? Yeah, and I, I don't know if that approach ever worked. <laughs> so <laughs> at some point it was used, but I don't know if it was the most effective one. And, you know, working with suppliers, whether they're diverse or not, in a more collaborative relationship, everybody says that it's hard to do. But even when we work with our customers, we see... You know, some of our customers have extraordinary results based on the fact that they're guiding us to improve our products, improve our services, and 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 uh, conversely, they're benefiting from it as well. So it's it's definitely a mutual relationship. And even when you're trying to do tier two, we talked about that a little bit, which was and you know somebody put the comment. I sorry, I'm sorry, I forgot the name. Uh, that it can't be just you know we do do as we say, not as we do. And, right. You know you. Uh, it's a much more collaborative relationship with your tier two, with your prime suppliers, asking them to do supply diversity initiatives. If you can point to yourself and say, hey, look at me, I'm doing 5%, 10% on my stuff. And so I'm asking you to do the same thing that I'm doing. So having those type of collaborative relationships, I think makes a big difference. Even companies that get a lot out of their tier two programs tend to be uh, much more engaging and much more collaborative with their teams where they bring in the supplier relationships managers, kind of coach suppliers where they need help, help them do matchmakers when they can, sometimes even provide guidance on how to do supply diversity themselves. Uh, all of that kind of really feeds into, you know, having much more bi-directional relationship rather than saying, hey, do it because I told you, and if you don't do it, we're gonna penalize you. I don't know if that approach ever works, but certainly not in today's day and age. Excellent point. And two final ones from our skyboxes. Helen says, go in public, We'll also pull diverse suppliers towards just a great point. And Peter Bolay all night and all day is with us here. Seems to me more strategic procurement is required in businesses. Excellent point there, Good Peter. Point, hope, Peter. You, hope this finds you well. Okay, Kelly, I knew it was going to be tough to get in everything we want to get into in an hour. Uh, Naraj, if you've got a couple of clones, you, you know, uh, they can <laughs> stick around for the rest of the day. And we'll just we'll absorb it all. But Kelly, what... Um, we want to make sure folks can connect with Naraj. Before we do that, any final question or comment that, that uh, we want to get in with Naraj while he's here with us? Sure. So, you know, I think from my perspective as someone that is not only in procurement, but who tries to be an advocate for careers, for the difference that we can make in companies. I actually was having a conversation this morning and I said, you know, when the rest of the business thinks of procurement, they think of like Dwight Schrute from The Office. You know, we don't <laughs> traditionally have the most big picture, relational type of reputation. I personally see supplier diversity as an opportunity to not only reposition the kinds of value that procurement can deliver, but also to give us a reason to invest in communications in understanding the, the higher level objectives of the business as a whole, right? To tie ourselves to your point, Niraj, to external statements that have been made. There's a dual opportunity for doing good, 
right? And maybe even more than two. The community does well, the company does well, and there's no reason why procurement can't benefit from these programs going well at the same time, but it is work. And we do have to understand what we're working towards and set those benchmarks as you had talked about. So Daniel, to your point, as long as we continue learning, right? And, and adding to our own understanding of what other programs are doing, having those uncomfortable conversations if they have to be, but having the conversations all the same, I think this really is a, a big moment for procurement on this front. Yeah. I love that. Another thought I'd like to add to what Kelly said is, uh, you know, talking about community, one of the things people who are in supply diversity or work in supply diversity find out very well it is, it's, is it is such a collaborative and supportive Group. So if you are a new supply diversity manager starting out your program, I mean, practically you could reach out to anybody else you see on LinkedIn who has a supply diversity in their title and they'd be more than happy to help you out. So in that way, I found this group to be very, I mean, even more so than ordinary, not to say procurement people are not collaborative, uh, but uh, even more so than normal, you know, this group will essentially, their mantra is, you know, you lift one, you lift all. Uh, so definitely plug into that community if you're new to the group. Well said, Naraj. Now, Kelly, I am not about to let that Dwight Schrute reference <laughs> get vast. So, you know, there's so much I want to share, but I want to share one little quote from Dwight Schrute. Quote, all you need is love. False. The four basic human necessities are air, water, food, and shelter. So all you need, so the Beatles lied to us all, I guess. Um, well, Naraj and Kelly, I really appreciate the conversation that and, and what y'all have brought. I love, gosh, the, the skyboxes and comments were full of stuff we couldn't even get to. A lot of uh, jewels of knowledge dropped in there. Again, folks, we want to keep the conversation going. One way you can do that beyond getting connected with each other and, and having frank conversations like we've had here is making those connections. So Naraj, we'd encourage folks to reach out to you and your team, a wealth of knowledge. You said you got a small team, but man, they are robust and powerful. So how can folks connect with you and your team, Naraj? Yeah, so the easiest way, if you want to connect directly with me, I'd love to chat with anybody on this call for about anything or reporter, anything that's around supply diversity, and you can reach me at Niraj at Supplier.io. Uh, but the easiest way, if you're looking for the reporter, talking to many of the great members in our broader team is, you know, shoot us an email at info at supplier.io or visit our website, and uh, we'd definitely love to chat, chat more with you. Wonderful. And that was info at supplier.io, right? That is correct. Yes. Okay, great. All right. Well, Kayla, I'll give you the last word before we swoosh Niraj out. I will just say thank you so much for sharing your point of view and your time, Niraj. I'm thrilled you were able to be here. Thrilled to be here. Thank you for inviting me. We are too. Niraj, wonderful to see you and meet you today and learn from you. Niraj Shaw, CEO Niraj Shah. I have cousins who are Shaws. Uh, Niraj Shah, CEO. Different continent. <laughs> supplier.io. Great. So great to meet you. Thanks so much. Great. Thanks, Scott. All of a sudden, we, we blink and Niraj and I are cousins. How about that? So, <laughs> so Kelly, man, chock full. And I appreciate some of the comments coming in. We really enjoyed that conversation as well. Niraj keeps it. Gosh, we love a good practical and a good frank and practical conversation. Yeah. And that's what he brought today, right? He did. And it's, I mean, truthfully, it's the benefit of focusing on something. You you can't do multiple things as well if you're trying to do them at the same time, really focusing on something. But I, I would also be remiss if I didn't acknowledge one particular comment that he made. And that is that I met many new members of the supplier diversity community in the weeks leading up to today. They are without a doubt the loveliest group of people. And so for everybody that is new to my network that I met as part of this process, I am so glad to be connected with you. I would encourage you to connect with each other. And if you're brand new and it's not even in your title, as Niraj said, find someone that has it in their title because 99.9% .9 of the time, they're going to be amazing, generous people that just want to help. Well said, Kelly. I couldn't, I couldn't say it any better. And folks, connections and relationships and frank conversations is what moves industry forward, whether we're talking supplier diversity and all the opportunities there or anything else that we're all trying to fight through and um, move global business forward. So I really appreciate all the great comments. As much as I enjoyed Kelly and Naraj's thought leadership and, and the conversation, 
man, uh, the comments were full uh, from so many folks. So thank you all for that. And make sure you download the report for folks listening to the uh, podcast replay. Let us know what you think. We'd welcome your POV. Reach out uh, via social at Kelly, the Dial P Gang, Buyer's Meeting Point, or uh, Supply Chain Now. Now, as much as I'd love to bolt another hour, we're going to have to call that a show at this point, Kelly. So big thanks to Kelly Barner and our friends again at Buyer's Meeting Point. Big thanks to all the folks that, that tuned in. Huge thanks to Naraj Shah. CEO of supplier.io. And on that note, uh, we challenge you on behalf of our entire team, Scott Luton signs up, signing off for now. Do good, give forward, be the change that's needed. And on that note, we'll see you next time right back here on Dial P on Supply Chain Now. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for being a part of our Supply Chain Now community. Check out all of our programming at supplychainnow.com and make sure you subscribe to Supply Chain Now anywhere you listen to podcasts and follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. See you next time on Supply Chain Now. Supply Chain Now.